0: Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show, with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. Today's tale occurred in the year 1938. But what else happened that year? On the 2nd of June, the Children's Zoo, part of London Zoo, is opened by Robert and Ted Kennedy, two of the sons of United States Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy. On the 30th of July, the Beano comic first goes on sale, featuring the character Lord Snooty. On the 25th of September, The Royal Navy is ordered to sea, and two days later, RMS Queen Elizabeth is launched at Clydebank. She is the largest ship in the world at this time. On the 30th of September, Neville Chamberlain returns to the UK from Munich at Heston Aerodrome, memorably waving the resolution signed the day earlier with Germany and later in Downing Street, giving his famous peace for our time speech. George VI and Queen Elizabeth appear with Chamberlain on the balcony of Buckingham Palace to celebrate the agreement. But one afternoon, a tall, good-looking 20-year-old young, able seaman arrived at his parents' home in Bristol, on leave from his ship docked at Portsmouth. Two hours later, he went quietly with officers to the Central Police Station to face a charge of murdering his father. Before I continue with this story, I'd like you to know that names have been changed in respect to any living relatives. The sailor, an able seaman on HMS Forrester, was Frederick Albert Button Smith and was born on 27th of November, 1916. And the dead man, his father, was George Frederick Button Smith, aged 50, of 6 Cabot Street, St Paul's. The accused man had been in the Royal Navy for several years and had obtained leave for a few hours on Sunday, travelling from Portsmouth by train and taking a taxi to his home. He was due to return to duty before evening. He had lunch with his mother, Mary Ellen, and the father and his two sisters, Rose, who was 18, and Nellie, 14, as well as his brother, Albert, who was 11, and his mother's father, Mr. Albert Edwards, who lived with the family. After lunch, the other children went out, the two youngest to go to Sunday school. Mr. Smith, who was himself in the Royal Navy for many years, but had recently become employed, went upstairs to lie down. Neighbours said they heard screams and some young men who were in the street ran into the house. They were E. Hobbs, Tom Davis, T. Matthew and E. Gibbon. Mr. Davis told a Preston Mirror reporter that on the floor of the bedroom he found Mr. Smith's dead body with terrible wounds to the head and neck. Mr. Hobbs ran off to inform the police. When the police arrived, Fred Smith opened the door and asked them inside He was taken into custody by Detective Sergeant Rudge and taken to the Central Police Station. Later, Detective Superintendent Harry Lush, Chief of the Bristol CID, went to the scene of the tragedy. Police photographers took pictures of the bedroom and Mr Smith's body was removed to the mortuary. The house of the tragedy was locked. Mrs Smith, who had a bad heart, collapsed at the news and kind neighbours Mr. and Mrs. Charles Street of 12 Cabot Street, took her and the other members of the family in for the rest of the day. Fred Smith was formally charged at the Central Police Station with murdering his father by striking him on the head with a hatchet. He appeared before the magistrates that morning at 11 o'clock and was remanded while the police completed their inquiries. He is described by those who knew him as a tall, good-looking young man, smart appearance and quiet disposition. During his years in the Royal Navy, he had seen service in foreign waters, including a period in Palestine.
1: Word of the Week
0: And this week, my friends, I give you... which is a noun meaning extreme superstition regarding the number 13. Famous people who have been plagued by this include Franklin Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, Mark Twain and Napoleon. At the Bristol Assizes on the 6th of July 1938, Smith, who was wearing a double-breasted blue suit, white collar and blue tie, looked pale as he was charged, but answered in a clear voice, not guilty. The names of two women were drawn to serve on the jury. To these, Mr Norman Skelhorn, who appeared for Smith, objected. Two other names were called again the names of women, and again Mr Skelhorn objected. The names of two men were called, And to these, he made no objection. Mr. J. Trapnell, who prosecuted, described the family dynamics to the court and went on to say that the history of the family was rather a pathetic one. The deceased man had for some years been behaving indecently towards the daughter, Rose. About Christmas, Mrs. Smith came to the conclusion that this indecent conduct had not finished. of the family Mary Ellen wrote a series of letters to the prisoner her son and that's how he found out what was going on Mr. Trapnell read extracts from these letters one letter stated if anything happens to me I want you to protect your sister I know you will understand that I am determined to start my life over afresh when you come home we can manage that without you soiling your hands another letter went on to say Rose has been too frightened to tell me, and she has been frightened of her work. This has made me ill with worry. When you come home, come as though you know nothing. Then we will take him to the police. We must get him out of the house. On March the 28th, she wrote that she did not feel well enough to go to the police, and she thought they would punish her for not going before. Her husband must be out of the house, by other means. On March the 29th, she asked her son to try and get him out of the house peacefully. We do not want the whole of the street to know, do we? She said. And three days later in another letter, she wrote, Now do be careful. He always carries a knife with him. I hope it will be all right. On the following day, Mrs Smith discovered that her husband had made a suggestion to Rose and sent a telegram to her son asking him to come at once. The accused was then staying with his fiancée at Portland, and he told her that he must go home, as his mother might be ill. But he sent a telegram to his mother, saying that he would be home on the following Saturday. And now, strap on your walking boots because we're going for a big stroll! The
1: big Bristol to London stroll!
0: Hello and welcome to the big Bristol to London stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take The Big Stroll. In gorgeous autumnal sunshine, we walk the Thames path from Hurley Lock through Marlow, downstream towards Bourne End. Marlow's main landmark is the graceful Suspension Bridge, which spans the Thames, joining Buckinghamshire and Berkshire, it was completed in 1832 to designs by William Tierney Clarke, who also designed the bridge across the Danube in Budapest. Marlowe's earlier bridges all cross the river from St. Peter Street, one of the oldest and most picturesque parts of the town. The lovely 23-acre Higginson Park has lawns for picnicking, riverside walks and a children's play area with cafe. The 18th century saw the arrival of Dr. Batty, a specialist in nervous diseases for whose name the term Batty is said to have sprung. He designed and built Court Garden House in Higginson Park, but for some reason, he forgot to include a staircase. Past residents have included Thomas Love Peacock, Jerome K. Jerome, T.S. Eliot, and the poet Shelley and his wife Mary, who completed her gothic masterpiece Frankenstein whilst living in Marlow. By the cricket ground, you'll find a more recent addition to the scenery. There's a modern tribute, a statue to Sir Steve Redgrave, a British retired rower who won gold medals at five consecutive Olympic Games, from 1984 to 2000. He was born in Marlow, and they're very proud of that fact. Along the route, we stopped off at Bourne End, home to Enid Blyton and the crime writer Edgar Wallace. You can't go inside as it's a private residence, but it was still nice to be in a sort of area. Soon we'll be coming to the end of this big stroll. And as you may know, we're doing it to raise money for the Suicide Prevention Bristol Charity. With all the chaos and uncertainty of the past few years, there has been a decrease in mental health and an increase in suicides. The volunteers at the Suicide Prevention Bristol Charity go out at night to the hotspots in the city centre. And should they find a lost soul... They try and talk to them before they make that final decision. This walk and the money raised is in memory of Sarah, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Now remember, if you feel low, there's always someone you can talk to, and you are more important than you probably know. If you'd like to donate, go to Just Giving and type in Backtracker, and you should find the page as well as more details about Sarah. Fred actually turned up the following day, Sunday the 3rd of April, after his mother had told him of the latest incident regarding his father. Fred gave the children sixpence each and told them to go down the shop and buy themselves what they wanted, just to get them out of the house. George, the father of the house, came home at two o'clock. He had gone out as soon as the pubs had opened. Mr Trapnell said,
1: He is said to have been a man who drank heavily. He was discharged from the Navy by reason of an indecent assault upon a girl in Jamaica, aged six. He was a man of a violent temper. The son greeted his father affectionately. They had meal together, and the father went upstairs to lie down, while the son took off his jacket, saying he was going to have a wash. He promised his mother that he would speak to his father. She did not hear him go upstairs, but she heard the sounds of a scuffle and went to a neighbour's
0: house. In the trial, when questioned by Mr. Skelhorn for the defence, Fred described what exactly happened in that bedroom when he went upstairs to confront his father.
1: I said to him, hey you, I want to talk about the girls. He was lying on the bed. He glanced up at me, flung the clothes aside and leapt out of bed. He then picked up something from the dressing table. I did not see what it was. He came towards me. When he was about two feet away from me, I caught a glimpse of a black handle. I thought it was a razor, and I think it was open. What did you think at the time he was going to do? I thought he was going to slash me with it. I put up the axe. I thought the only chance I had of saving myself was to stun him with it. I twisted it so that the back of it was to my father and aimed a blow at his temple. I hit him about there.
0: At this point, Fred touched his left cheek to indicate the place he was talking about.
1: He seemed to go mad. He dropped the razor and sprang at me. Did he deliberately drop it? I think the blow shocked him and he dropped it. He then caught hold of my wrist with his left hand and the hatchet with his right hand. I pushed him towards the dressing table, but he gathered himself and ran me back towards the window. It was my back that smashed the window. I think he was trying to heave me into the yard below. What do you believe would have happened if he had got the axe? I have no hesitation in saying that I would have been killed and any of the family who stood in his way. I thought I was going out of the window and it was then that I said, do you call yourself a man?
2: Did you say you would kill him?
1: Uh, No, that statement was made by him when we were struggling by the door. I then lashed out with my fist and hit him in the face. He gave me a final shove and ran around the edge of the bed towards the door. I thought he was running to get another weapon to attack me and any other member of the family. I thought the best thing to do was to keep him in the room.
0: Fred went on to describe how there was a violent struggle to get hold of the axe.
1: He seemed like a maniac. I was panic-stricken. I tore myself from him and struck him twice with the hatchet. I hit him on the head. He collapsed and fell forward. I then lost my head and went on hitting him. After I'd finished hitting him, someone tried the door. I put my foot against it. I thought it was my mother. I said, get out! I went round... side of the bed and picked up the razor and I walked around the bottom of the bed and cut my father's throat Did he show signs of being alive? No sir I think he was dead when he fell on the floor
0: In the news today Thieves have stolen 20 crates of Red Bull from a local shop. The owner says, I don't know how these people sleep at night.
1: The Backtracker History Show. Stories from the past brought back to life.
0: You're listening to me, Alice, and I hope you agree with me that this is an intriguing yet sad story this week. I really feel for the family on so many levels. And I hope you agree with me that there is more than one victim in this particular tragedy. And yet, there's still so much more I can tell you, such as other witness statements, the mother's statement, and of course, the verdict. Which is why it'll continue next week in part two.
2: Ted Bundy murdered my dad's friend in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true crime cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the impossible murder of Julia Wallace, share terrifying true stories from our listeners about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's lost tomb. I'm Jaden McKell and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the mistress of Murder Farm, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the horror film The Omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts.
1: Back in the day facts. Back in the day facts.
0: Let's start with the 20th of November, 1945 when the Nuremberg war trials begin as 24 Nazi leaders are put on trial before judges representing various allied powers. Judges from Britain, America, Russia and France assemble in Nuremberg's courthouse. Empowered to impose sentence of death or such punishment as it may consider just, the tribunal sits in judgment upon 20 leaders of the Nazi party. On the 21st of November, 1931, horror film Frankenstein is released, starring Boris Karloff as the monster, directed by James Whale and based on Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. On the 22nd of November, 1997, lead singer for NXS Michael Hutchins is found dead in his hotel suite in Sydney. He was 37. On the 23rd of November in the year 800, Charlemagne arrives in Rome to investigate the alleged crimes of Pope Leo III. Charlemagne has been called the father of Europe as he united most of Western Europe for the first time since the classical era of the Roman Empire. And on the 24th of November, 1715, London's Thames River freezes over. It wasn't uncommon for the Thames to freeze over, but this one lasted almost three months and had all the usual features. People played skittles, enjoyed street entertainers and watched bulls being baited. They strolled happily about on the ice or were pulled along on sledges or boats by the Thames watermen who were temporarily out of work and needed a fee. Bonfires were lit on the ice and food was cooked. Shops and restaurants opened in canvas tents and souvenirs were on sale in printers' shops. A factor in this mini ice age was the old London Bridge whose 19 narrow arches and their breakwaters slowed down the stream. The new bridge which opened in 1831 had only five arches which helped bring the freezing of the Thames to an end. The last frost fair was in 1814. Well, I fear, my friends, that brings us to the end of the show this week. But don't worry, I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. I'd like to take a moment to thank the people who are the real stars of the show, the ones that bring the stories to life. And this week we have Kate Kendall, Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold and John Locke from Bradley Stoke Radio. Also, we have Tony Allen, who stepped in to help out. Thanks, one and all, for your contribution. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.